0: Welcome once again to Paleo J's Smoothie Cafe, which lately has been concentrating more and more on heroic tales around the campfire, which is very paleo in and of itself. Today, I'm going to be reading to you from Layer of the Wolf, which is part two of A Barbarian in Chicago by Simon Stanton. I have special permission to read this book to you. So, let's begin. It's a long one. I'm going through the chapters here. Okay. Chapter 1, Chicago Revenge. Our land is more valuable than your money. It will last forever. It will not even perish by the flames of fire. As long as the sun shines and the waters flow, this land will be here to give life to men and animals. I want this son of a bitch captured, said Antigone Gibbons, police detective of Chicago. His yellowish face was contorted, hatred making him more ugly than he really was. The chief of police of Chicago and various leaders of the FBI were all there, listening to him rage. The various members of the media, both national and of Chicago, were there as well. The news of Wolfgott escaping justice in the city of Chicago was big national news. No one did not know of it. How he had been in court, a court that had already basically convicted him for murder and, worse than that in their liberal, politically correct minds, convicted him of multiple hate crimes. This last meant merely that he had been convicted of attacking and killing black people, which had somehow become worse than any other crime possible. But the young barbarian, as he termed himself, and was now also called in the media as a pejorative, had escaped right out of the court under the very noses of the police, and no one really knew precisely just how he had done it. Electric lights, in fact, the very sun itself had been blotted out during his escape, facilitating it really, because otherwise he could have never gotten away. It was months later, and there had been no headway in the young suspect's recovery. His grandmother, Nora Gott, had been on TV multiple times, railing against her relation's crimes against minorities, and how she wanted him brought to justice. She often appeared alongside Antigone Gibbons, who had taken on this case as his own personal vendetta, and nodded in agreement to his rabid ravings about justice and vengeance. The popular media all agreed with them, but there was a divergence of opinion that seemed to be growing, supporting the young barbarian as doing vigilante law and order work that the police and city bureaucrats had long abandoned. Wes Parker was often interviewed on more conservative, alternative types of media. Wes had befriended the young wolf when the youth had first been ordered to Chicago to finish his schooling with his grandmother, whom he had never even met, since he was not yet 18 and of his majority, and so the law had ordered him, after the death of his mother, to move to the big city under her care. He left his beloved northern wilderness only because of his belief in obeying the law. After a time in the all-black decadent and savage hyde park high school however he realized that the law of the land had been perverted wes a private police force member of the mercenaries protecting the university of chicago reiterated his opinion on wolf escaping over and over and how he was justified completely He had been fired from the U of C after he started stating his opinions, which were embarrassing for the university. There were those that were convinced, but the mainstream liberal view was overwhelmingly of the youth as a horrible fugitive from justice who must be recaptured, brought to trial, and executed. I know he's somewhere up there, said the yellowish detective Gibbons, pointing to a map of the far north United States on his PowerPoint presentation. That is where this bitter clinger is from, and I want to get the cracker. Spittle flew from his lips, so impassioned was the detective. There were representatives from the federal government, the Chicago Police Department, and even the FBI all present. All nodding agreement, they moved together to plan their strategy. They had no explanation for the total blackout that had facilitated the youth's escape, but they were confident that with extreme military superiority, they could easily extract the young barbarian Wolfgott from his northern wilderness and reservation stronghold. The last thing that Antigone Gibbons, Chicago detective, said that day, the best thing is he has no idea that we are coming. His reservation may be independent, technically, from the U.S. government, but we are going to extract this son of a bitch, and he has no idea. Laughing like a fiend from hell, Gibbons shook with passion. The passion not of arresting a wrongdoer, no. The passion of hurting someone who has crossed you and made you look like a fool. Chapter 2. WOLF'S LAIR. Akula, medicine man of the Ojibwe on his far north reservation, stepped back from the small pool of water. Within that pristine spring of clear water had been reflected the exact discussion about Wolfgott, spoken by Gibbons and his fellow conspirators in Chicago. They had appeared within the water, wavering, yet quite clear and distinct, "'Sun dappled the placid water through the leaves above, "'but did not obscure the picture or the sound. "'The medicine man who had wrought this magic "'looked at Wolf, who stood directly before him. "'You have heard of the plan those evil men have. "'They will be coming up here "'to attack those who have never harmed them, "'just to punish you "'for making them look like the fools that they are. "'I know, Grandfather.' said wolf his voice a low rumble we will be waiting and not unprepared beside him his friend nikon nodded and lowered his dark brows in anger they had all watched as if through a window the plans of those men reflected in the water ensorcelled by the ancient medicine man akula we will be ready said nikon and clasped hands with his childhood friend wolf wolf and nikan both smiled widely with strong white teeth and akula himself broke into an unaccustomed grin yes my sons we will be ready and more importantly we will have the right on our side these men have no thought of that but it is strong medicine in our favor and he set his lean, coppery-colored hands atop those of Nikon and the dark, bronzed fist of Wolf. There was not that much preparation really necessary for the Ojibwe and the barbarian youth who had been raised amongst them. They pretty much just went about their daily routine, which included training and constant vigilance about the ever-present danger of war. In the mornings, at first light, they trained in their northern fastness of trees and plains. Wolf and Nikan had been born and bred to this training, working on gradual muscular mobility first thing, and then gradually working into strength training, stretching, and finally weapons work. They reveled in this rigorous training and could not imagine a true life without it. When Wolf had escaped from Chicago... With help from the Ojibwe medicine man, Akula's Magic, he had taken a poor black waif along with him named Jafiro. He could not leave him behind as he was unfit to survive in his violent, savage environment of Hyde Park in Chicago, plagued with violence and corruption as it was. He had included him in his training regimen from the 1st, realizing that only by submitting to the rigid discipline that he himself adhered to, could the frail youth advance and thrive in the harsh environment not only of the northern wilderness in which he now dwelled, but also in the savage world of the decadent big cities that America and much of the world had devolved into. The poor, frail youth, wearing his thick-rimmed glasses, had been training along with Nikon and Wolf for some months now, learning how to use weapons for hunting and defense, after training in the mornings for strength, agility, and flexibility. Along with them, he flexed his muscles throughout their range of motion, providing his own resistance within the muscles themselves. He learned to do push-ups, just a few at first, and then progressively more and more in sets. He found he enjoyed the training and, of course, the camaraderie with his fellows, which was not only Wolf and Nikon, but a number of the Ojibwe youths who had accepted him unquestioningly as one of their own tribe on Wolf's recommendation. He felt ashamed of his own people back in Chicago, who he knew would have never accepted one not of their own dark race as these had so readily accepted him. He now knew that those blacks were the true racists. After the morning training and a brief snack of jerky and berries, they would be off hunting, only returning when they had enough meat to last several days. The thin youth gained muscle quickly under this demanding regimen, and even found that, since he spent his days looking out upon the horizon searching for quickly moving game animals and birds, coupled with his now-superb diet of wild game, fruits, and vegetables, that he needed his glasses less and less. His eyes strengthened, right along with his muscles, his endurance, and his mind as well. For Trina Gilberts, the attractive young café au lait teacher from Hyde Park High School had also chosen to go with Wolf off to the Northwoods, away from the decadence and corruption that she knew had taken over not only Chicago, but all of America's big cities. And she was teaching here, on the reservation, just as she had in Hyde Park, only here the students wanted to learn. She was a gifted teacher, and so was well cut out for the job here. A one-roomed schoolhouse with a few white kids from nearby who chose to come. And the native children that lived there as well. All ages, all welcome, and all desirous of learning, they came daily. That she was dark, with jet black, straight hair, and dusky skin was meaningless to them all, parents and children. The fact that she was passionate about teaching and taught real subjects like history, both ancient and modern, Specifically, Western civilization, that civilization that that had created the shining light of the world, the United States of America. She taught real English, not multiculturalism, basic mathematics, and science. She did not teach Ebonics, which is the pidgin English spoken by blacks in America today, and she taught in no other languages. The Ojibwe had their own language, which they kept alive at home, but in school they recognized through their studies of history that English was the new Latin, the lingua franca of the modern world, the language that could be understood by all educated men and women. All should know it. Life here on the reservation was very good, both for the youngsters and the parents. Spiritual matters were taught each Sunday by Akula, the medicine man of the tribe, and what he taught was very similar to that of a small country preacher in a Protestant Christian church. Treat one another as you would want to be treated. Revere the Great Spirit. Even the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Son of the Spirit, was taught weekly. But above all, Akula taught of holding nature which had been created by the Great Spirit in reverence. This latest Sunday, the tribe and several nearby families of whites all gathered in the sacred canyon where they held their services in the summer months. In the winter, they used a large timbered hall of logs with a blazing hearth and skins to sit on upon the floor. But now, in the beautiful spring, they all gathered on a shelf that stretched before a yawning cavern of naked rock. The sun rose to shine directly on a large wooden cross hung with a sacred dream-catcher of feathers and intricately woven cords. To the side stood an image, the image of an eagle, wings upraised in flight. The beams of the rising sun illuminated it all brightly as Akula began his sermon. All of us have inalienable rights that of living a full life, to multiply and thrive, to freedom and self determination. Not only us, but our animal brothers and the birds of the air. No being has the right to take from another what they have earned, even to give to another. This is robbery. This is stealing and is beneath any creature of this earth, except sometimes for man. We all are under attack, my people, an attack completely unprovoked, but yet in motion against us. We have long rejected the payments being offered to the red man from the white man to keep us in bondage on our own lands. My own father realized that those payments would only enslave our souls, and so we have been self-sufficient for generations. We are independent of the laws of the U.S., since we have our own sovereign nation. That said, we recognize the greatness that is the United States, and we support it wholeheartedly as an independent, allied country from all attackers. But now, as I say, An evil faction that has gained ascendancy in much of the U.S., I, in much of the world itself, sadly, is now trying to subvert the freedoms for which this country stands and is obsessed with seeking power and stealing from those who produce and provide for themselves. They are coming here to take one of our sons. Here he gestured to Wolf, who nodded his leonine head in acknowledgment. And I say to you, we will not permit it. Jesus, Son of the Great Spirit, told us to turn the other cheek, and we have, again and yet again. But now, my people, we need to take an eye for an eye. At that very moment, a large white-headed eagle flew into the canyon just above the preacher, And screamed. And we'll leave it there. This uh, campfire gathering at Paleo J Smoothie Cafe, and I will see you all again next time.